Portugalist is basically a travel blog that keeps on expanding and expanding about Portugal. I started mainly writing it for people who were coming to visit, but certainly over the last few years, the type of people that are getting in touch with me and reading it are people who want to move to Portugal. So there's been a couple of big events that seem to have had an effect on that, Brexit being one of them, mm. and Donald Trump getting elected in the States being the other and potentially getting re-elected. Lots and lots more people are thinking about moving to Portugal and they're thinking about doing it very fast at the moment. And so I provide information on how you might do that, what you need in terms of residency, and also I cover the, the tourist stuff as well, which is originally what I started off with, the things to do, what to eat, where to go, hotels you might like to stay in, that sort of thing. Do you think you've moved away from more of the things to do in Portugal and you've moved into the realm of helping people emigrate? Poor immigrant, get my grammar right there. Yeah, I always get it confused which way around <laughs> it is as well. Yeah, certainly this year. Last year, I was very happy covering the more touristy stuff because it's a lot easier because I have an EU passport. Moving to Portugal for me would be very easy and has been very easy. For someone coming from outside of the EU, it is more complicated. You have to think about visas. You have to think about whether you have a job or a pension or some kind of business to set up or something like that. It's not even just that there's for example sometimes you can only apply for a visa while you're in your home country so it's a more confusing area and I'd spent a lot of time trying to avoid doing it but this year with with so few tourists coming to Portugal and just with so many more people asking about it with, with the two events that I mentioned coming up it does seem that that just seems to be where the business is going. I guess it's a lot of time to keep that information up to date. It is so that's so so the first thing is the information itself is more complicated than tourist stuff. Tourism related mm. stuff is very simple. And if I was to get it wrong for somebody, it's not the end of the world. You stay in a hotel that you don't think is as good as I recommended or a restaurant or something. It's, it's not terrible. But when you're talking about people moving to another country, the stakes are higher. Yeah, and also keeping it up to date, obviously the rules regarding moving to a country change a lot and that can be difficult. So I have to work very closely with companies here in Portugal who deal it with relocation. So they're constantly dealing with immigration here to see where the rules are changing, but also what's being accepted and what's not being accepted. And so they have anecdotal advice of, of what people should be putting in their applications and things like that. And Portugal seems to be a hot place to move to at the moment. And I was just listening to a podcast with one of the founders of Nomad X. Do you know these guys? Yeah. Yep. Well, they seem to be doing really well and the website's very polished and uh, it's a pity it's not available outside of Portugal, but obviously they just saw there was a market there for this kind of thing in Portugal and seems to be very popular, especially with the digital nomad crowd and also some subsection of the expat crowd. What's your take on that? From an insider's point of view, do you see it as being the top destination to move to or it's just one of those places that people are willing to explore for a few years? So Portugal has a, a lot to offer people, depending on your situation. And so there's two groups of people that you mentioned there, I think, which would be the expats who permanently want to live in Portugal and those that are more the digital nomad types who maybe want to come here for a few months or actually many end up staying on a bit longer than that. 
So I think with, with digital nomads, the thing that, that we're all looking for is a community. We all want to go to different parts of the world, but one of the things that we end up looking for is, are there going to be other people there that I'll be able to meet and get to know, or is it going to be quite a lonely experience? And I think that's why you get these little hubs like uh, Chiang Mai and, and Bansko, which I, must be near where you are now. And, and people keep on coming back to them because they have that community there because they can uh, network and learn new things and just live a life but have a sort of a group of friends that's easily accessible and Lisbon definitely has that. It hasn't really spread to other bits of Portugal yet. There are people in Porto and there are people in the Algarve especially but it's they're very small there so it has stayed very concentrated on Lisbon but last year the meetups here were getting a hundred plus people attending which is a huge wow. number. It's you yeah, know, it is comparable to the other places that I mentioned. There's plenty of co-working spaces. Portugal has its own sort of small startup scene that's mainly with, with Portuguese startups. You can integrate into that a little bit as well. So it definitely is a good place for digital nomads. And then there's all the reasons that people want to come to Portugal, which is the great weather for the majority of the year. It's in a good time zone for those who have to say deal with the United States and Europe. It's quite good there in comparison to other countries. And food, cost of living, beaches, uh, surfing, wine, there's, uh, there's loads of great things about it. For the people who have come for more of a permanent settling, one of the things that's very attractive about Portugal is that it's, try and say this in the best way possible, it's an easy way into Europe. So Portugal has some very attractive visas and schemes to get people to move to Portugal. So, for example, there is the golden visa scheme, which is aimed at those who, who have money to buy a property or invest in some way. And it, for a lot of people who are, say, in a later stage of their life, it's quite affordable. The average is about 500,000 euros for a property or in some cases 350,000. And that gives you the the ability to live in Portugal as much as you want. You actually only have to be there for an average of seven days a year. At the end of those five years, you can then apply for permanent residency or get a Portuguese passport. And during that time, you have access to the whole of the Schengen area as well. And then for those that don't have that kind of money, which is a lot of us, there's another visa called the D7 visa, which if you already have some sort of income, be that a pension or you're um, self-employed, or you have property abroad that you rent out or something like that. Basically, you don't have to come to Portugal and get a job here. You can apply for that as long as you have as much as the minimum wage here, which is very, very uh, low by European standards. It's, it's around 800 euros a month, although I think people generally say a thousand is a good sort of minimum to aim for. So for a lot of people in Western countries outside of the EU, that might be a meant that they already earn. And it gives them the ability to come and, and live in Portugal. And as well, after five years, they have the opportunity to apply for permanent residency or to apply for Portuguese citizenship. So that I think that's very attractive as well, especially for people, like I mentioned, who are, say, trying to get out of the United States at the moment or other places. Both of those visas are, are quite attractive, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the US looking to move to Europe, and Portugal seems like a good option. You'll 
probably be able to tell me or correct me, but from what I found, the tax situation yeah. seems, let's say, not quite what I was looking for. It seems quite high, especially for self-employed or running your own business. You've got the business in Portugal and your residency is in Portugal. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that one? Yes. Yeah, so I think this is an area, particularly for the digital nomads, is disappointing because one, you probably started looking into when you heard about the non-habitual uh, resident scheme which a lot of articles online say allows you to pay a 0% tax in Portugal over 10 years, which I don't think the Portuguese government have necessarily marketed it wrongly. I think a lot of people have picked up on it and written articles about it in the wrong way. Hmm. But overall, yeah, Portugal has high taxes. It also has a it also has a lot of bureaucracy, and it's not so. The problem isn't so much that the taxes are necessarily high; it's that you need to do you need to find an accountant here to do your tax return. Many people already do their tax returns without an accountant and have very simple setups that they just do the same thing every year. In Portugal, the rules tend to change. You don't really know what's going on. You go to your accountant. He doesn't really know what's going on. You fill out this form and then they come back to you and say, uh, we need you to fill out this form instead. And so there is, there's a, uh, it can get quite complicated and from that point of view. There are tax schemes, though, to entice people to come to Portugal. So the non-habitual residency scheme, which I mentioned, basically that for most people would mean paying a 20% flat rate plus social security, which if you're a low earner, it's probably not the best deal because other Western countries have high tax-free allowances, which this one doesn't necessarily give you. But if you're a high earner, say you're on 100,000 euros a year or more, then playing a fat rate of 20% is quite enticing. And this, this is available to certain people. They have a list of professions that they bring out every year. Often tech-related skills are on it, say software developers and things like that. And company owners and entrepreneurs is another one that tends to come up almost every year on it. That one is the one that people get excited about, particularly because they think it's an opportunity to not pay any tax. But unfortunately, I, I haven't really met anyone here who's doing that. I have heard stories from the companies I work with that, that maybe there's one or two cases where that happens, but it does seem to be quite rare. The other tax incentive they have here is called the simplified regime, which tends to suit freelancers better than the non-habitual residency program. And that basically means you're taxed on a percentage of your income. You'd be taxed Portuguese tax rates, but on say 65% of your income rather than the whole 100%. What we can take from that is that there's no tax utopia. No, there isn't. You've got to figure out if it's a place you want to live in, if the lifestyle suits you and the other costs, uh, like the, the low cost of food and travel and things like that. And you also live there and pay into the tax system. Nowhere yeah. is perfect, but in Portugal seem, seems to be gaining in popularity. They're doing something right and it seems to work out for a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. You've got to weigh up the pros and cons. So your taxes might be higher here than um, they are in the country that you're in currently. There may be more confusing sort of paperwork to deal with. 
But, do, you know, do you get 300 days of sunshine per year as you get in Lisbon and the Algarve? Do you have a low cost of living, which might offset some of the cost of the taxes? Mm. Does it mean that in five years time you will have a European passport that would allow you to move around the EU and, and work in another country if you wanted to? And so, yeah, you do have to sit down and work out, you know, how much you're paying now in tax and how much you would pay, say, under these two schemes and whether it's worthwhile or whether it's not. Yeah, for a non-EU person, it really sounds an amazing deal to make your way into Europe or just spend the rest of your life in uh, Portugal, whatever works best. How are you seeing the, the tourism levels at the moment? Has it completely died or are people starting to come back? We're talking on the 1st of September 2020. Yeah. How's it looking over there? Very, very quiet. So my sort of site's traffic just took a nosedive around mm. the middle of March. And there was a lot of, I think in April, maybe even into May, I was still getting a lot of messages from people who were saying we're going to come in the summer or we're going to come in September. At the moment, the EU has... Uh, as flight restrictions on who can come into into the Schengen area. So that that makes it difficult for a lot of people. So I think it's just so uncertain at the moment. People don't know whether they're going to have to quarantine when they get back. They don't uh, know also if their flights might be canceled. So it's created a lot of confusion. And I think only the really brave and those that are desperate for sunshine are coming. I don't know what the official numbers are. I do hear some tourists and see them out and about, but it's definitely a fraction of what it was last year. I've been very happy to be in Portugal during this time. Yeah. I feel very comfortable being here now. The number of cases here are so much lower yeah. than they are in so many other countries and places like um, Spain and France and Italy and the UK. And, and people take it very seriously here. There hasn't been this anger about having to wear a, a mask or anything out you. Everybody wears it when they go in a shop and it's a good percentage of people wear it voluntarily on the street as well. So it is something that people are taking seriously and it is somewhere that I think you would be very comfortable visiting if you had the nerve to deal with the airlines and the travel insurance and all the other things. <laughs> so many things to think about, yeah. I'm in Bulgaria at the moment and everybody wears a mask in the shops and supermarkets any crowded areas a few people wear them on the streets they, they don't generally wear them in restaurants except for the servers they they wear them i just wanted to ask you about the the blog i wanted to ask you how you got started and what brought you to portugal and got you started with the portugalist so i'd lived in portugal as a child between the ages of two and seven no memory of it whatsoever and no memory of the the portuguese language which i spoke at the time apparently went to school here like yeah. primary school yeah and then moved to ireland i moved to west cork and lived there until i was about 19 uh, 20 and then moved over to the uk and worked there for a number of years and when i moved over to the uk my uh, parents and my two brothers moved back to portugal so that my two brothers did their school here my parents set up a bed and breakfast in the Algarve and, and ran that and so I was coming out more and more to Portugal and eventually once I started doing the nomadic thing myself I spent some time in Lisbon back in 2013 living here and at the time nobody was really interested in coming to Portugal there was you know loads of people coming for retirement but it wasn't this boom that that there's been in the last few years and uh, so I, I did think about starting a website then but I didn't and then a few years later after I'd kept coming back and spending more and more time here 
I thought I'm going to set one up because I have a little bit more experience than the average person about Portugal. For anything I don't know, I can get answers to because I've, I've got family that live here. And and I felt like there, there wasn't very good information out there about Portugal already. A lot of it was just was very top level stuff. And, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper and to try and create a sort of information hub for people who were planning on spending some time here. And so I started doing it as a side project and it expanded and and then it, it grew to become my main project and and that's what I've been doing now for the past um, few years I think it was 2016 that I bought the domain maybe it was the year before but it was some it was sometime around then and so yeah that would make it about four years now that I've been running it not so long. I actually thought it was longer than that. I heard you on a podcast somewhere and I thought it was maybe two years ago, something like that. Is it the blog, your main gig? Is it your main source of income? Is that where you position yourself? It is, yeah. So prior to this, I worked a lot in online marketing. That's what I'd done for a job and that's what I did as a freelancer. So mainly SEO type stuff. And then I got tired of dealing with clients and I wanted just to do my own project and to have complete control over something. And and so that was one of the reasons that I set this up was um, just to be able to do that. And then, yeah, now it's a main project. I also have done a little bit of a book publishing thing, but that's just, that's very small. And can you share any figures, uh, traffic numbers on the website? Not currently, but pre-COVID, let's say. Yeah, so last year it was doing, last summer it was doing really well. It was somewhere between about 200, 250,000 visitors a month, which I was very uh, pleased with and had very grand plans for. And then there's been a couple of Google updates which haven't worked in my favor that I'm trying to work and improve the site to come back from. And I think I got it improved by about January or February and it was starting to come back and then the COVID thing happened. And so the numbers, I didn't, I think they're like a third or a quarter of what they, what they should be. 200,000 visits a month is very impressive. 99% of the travel bloggers out there would be delighted with those kind of numbers. Yeah, I think maybe travel blogs uh, did a little bit better than they should have been doing at that time. I feel like travel blogs, blogs in general were very in favor. Now they are getting less traffic than they did. I think they had an advantage having lots and lots of content on a single article. And now Google's got better at understanding what the search intent is and understanding that maybe a, a blog post isn't the right result for the searcher. And so I don't know if I would ever get it back to those days. Is it called Portugalist or The Portugalist? I just want to get Wait, it right. <laughs> whichever you like. People say both, but a lot of people right. are saying The Portugalist, so go with it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Portugalist.com is actually a really great domain name. Yeah, and I suppose it's so memorable. It just feels like I have to say The in front of it to make it clear. If you were, say, starting the blog again, is there anything you'd do differently? Yeah, uh, so I don't know if I'd start a blog about Portugal. Um, yeah, having a blog about Portugal, you think that it would make a lot of sense having a blog that's just about one country, so you can be an expert on it. And I thought this would give me a very strong SEO advantage as well. I was I was wrong on that. I do still get outranked by more general travel sites and more general travel blogs. I thought just because I had like hundreds of pages about Portugal that I would have a very strong authority for that um, subject. The, the two things, two reasons I'd say don't start a blog about 
Portugal or some uh, small country. The first one is that it really ties you to one place, which when you're a nomad isn't what you want. So if you have a more general website, you have a lot of freedom to travel around. It does mean that I'm here a lot of the time, which I'm getting to the point that I'm you know, happy about. But every now and then I do wish that I could go uh, somewhere else and write about that instead. The second thing I'd say is just from an earnings point of view, I wish I'd started like Americaist instead, because with the advertising that's on the site, advertisers pay uh, so much less for traffic from somewhere like Portugal. Basically, they pay a lot for the United States, a bit less for, say, Canada and Germany, the United Kingdom, Switzerland. These wealthier countries is the next level. And then there's the rest of the world where they just pay a very small amount. So when I see people who have similar traffic numbers to myself, similar types of content, they could be potentially making three, four times as much um, money as me putting in the same number of hours. And then also, if you were to have a, a blog that was connected to, to somewhere, say, the United States or the UK or wherever, you probably have more opportunities for uh, sponsorships, for affiliate partnerships, things like that. And these things, a lot of them are quite new here. There's very few affiliate programs, which means it's very difficult to do partnerships with local companies. They don't really have the concept of it. I don't get very much given to me for free either in comparison to um, people who have blogs in other countries. I think I think I got offered a meal in an Indian restaurant once and uh, in a in a hostel. <laughs> and so they were the, the only ones that had really thought about that sort of thing. I see your point. The US and the UK traffic is so, so much more lucrative, but do you not do you not think there's so much more competition in the, the US blog space? And also you're the you're the big fish in a small pond rather than be or me on a huge lake over there if that makes sense i do think you're right yeah there would have been so much more competition and i was able to grow quite fast actually and i don't think i would have been able to do that if i was targeting another country like you say like the us or uk and so it is true you've got to weigh it up and your competition would be uh, a lot stronger in those um, other places as well and so you know, most of the websites here, there's smallish sites with very small teams or maybe just one person like myself, whereas I know people who do the same sort of thing as me in other countries. But they're running it like a, a serious business. They have teams of writers below them. Everything is outsourced and delegated and, and running like clockwork. And it would be hard to go up against that, definitely. The ideal thing to do, possibly, now, who knows what the ideal thing to do in Google's eyes is, but would be to have a brandable blog that isn't tied to Portugal and then create a major category or maybe the only category for a few years. It's all about Portugal. And then when you've completely saturated that niche, which could be big or small, depending, you move on to another place. That's one way to do it. You could even yeah. rebrand, but that might be a dangerous option for you. Do you have other plans for the, the blog? How are you going to grow the traffic or have you got other ways to branch out yeah so i have thought about uh rebranding like you say but it is a little dangerous because people know the name now within portugal anyway and from an seo point of view changing names as well is always a little bit tricky you uh, i think in most cases you do end up losing a bit of traffic yeah yeah at the moment what i'm doing is i'm speaking to a lot of people all the people who are emailing the site and uh, occasionally doing phone calls with them and i'm just listening to what they're looking for 
And like I said, at the moment, it really is the moving to Portugal type stuff. And I'm, I'm finding those needs that they have and then trying to find solutions for them. The site, I think, will probably take on more of a sort of a trip advisor type feel, a sort of moving to Portugal list of resources and companies here that are recommended. But yeah, it's all up in the air. It depends what people come back and say, but this is where I can see it going. And do you think travel blogging has a future? Is it something you'd recommend people to start now in 2020? Every year there's there's always new blogs that start up and they and they do really well. There's like a small percentage of them. And the one that the one thing I would probably going back to what you said about doing differently, I think when you're just producing information, it's very hard to compete. If I'm writing about, say, the top 10 things to do in Lisbon, and I say there's the castle and you should go here and go there, that's all public domain sort of information. So someone else can easily come along and and copy you. And even Google can now, it produces its own uh, trip guides through all the information it's got. And um, competing just on the point of view of information, I don't really recommend it. I think you end up in this sort of a lot of other travel bloggers now have to take on so many freelance writers just to just keep churning out that content like an assembly line. I think if you have a little bit of personality and you can create something that's just you and your stories and things like that, you're going to have a little bit of a competitive advantage because nobody can really copy that in the same way. That's difficult because not all of us have that sort of charismatic personality. And even those that do, it's a lottery, which ones end up getting picked up by people and the ones that people end up liking. I think there always is an opportunity for uh, new travel blogs, but I would say just competing on just pure information alone is very difficult now. I have to agree with that. Great advice. That might save some people a lot of time. To wrap up, James, I wanted to ask you one more question. Where is your favorite travel destination, which doesn't have to be in Portugal, but can be? Okay. One place anyway the, in Portugal that I really like that just sprung to mind there is the Azores. It's this group of islands off the coast of Portugal, sort of, I don't know if it's quite halfway between Portugal and the US, it's probably closer to Portugal. The islands look look like a mixture between Ireland and Hawaii. They've got a volcano sort of a structure to them. Many of them have lakes and they're, they're green, which is very different to mainland Portugal. But with a tropical climate that they can grow pineapples. I went to a coffee and tea plantations there. And it's but the people speak Portuguese and it's a part of Portugal and it's a very unique place you have to travel around there's nine islands you have to get around by ferry one of the towns that i went to there didn't even have electricity i had to walk for five kilometers there because they didn't have roads either it's going to become a, a popular place and if you can get there it's worth going to before it ends up becoming a very touristy yeah and reiner fly there now oh, you yeah. had plans to go last year actually it looks very interesting if, if people want to find you portugalist.com so it's portugal ist.com or is there anywhere else you'd recommend people to check out no i would say definitely go there and people sometimes contact me through the social media for the sites but i am terrible at managing those yeah the website is the best one there's a contact form there if you have any questions or you can email me james at portugalist.com brilliant thanks again james thank you